Most gracious Father, we humbly beseech Thee for Thy holy Catholic Church. Fill it with all truth, in all truth, with all peace. Where it is corrupt, purge it. Where it is in error, direct it. Where in anything it is amiss, reform it. Where it is right, strengthen it and confirm it. Where it is in want, provide for it. Where it is divided, reunite it. And all for the sake of him who gave his life for it, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. That is a prayer for the unity of the church. It seems to me to be an appropriate one uh, for the section of Ephesians that we're looking at today, which is Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to go ahead and read through the first six verses and then come back and look at them in greater detail. And of course, this is a section on which Paul is praying for, of all things, unity, unity in the body. So if you have your Bibles, please open them to Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll read through these first six verses. The apostle writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, Paul in this section, and we've been talking about this for the last several weeks, Paul in this particular session is talking about importance of our leading a worthy life. And when Paul says leading a worthy life, he means a life that is worthy of the one we serve. Uh, you've heard the expression, a worthy opponent. A worthy opponent is somebody whose skills or ability is equal to your own. So when you go into a, a, a contest with somebody, you don't want it to be lopsided. If it's going to be a real contest, you, you want the teams to be worthy of one another. Well, the same is true in terms of our calling as Christian people. The Apostle Paul wants us to live a life that is worthy of the high calling that we have received. And what is that high calling? Well, we said that high calling is to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ, to be His representatives in the world. And because we represent Christ, we live, need to live a life that is worthy of Christ, a Christ-like life. And that's what Paul has been unpacking here in this section of Ephesians. And he is praying this for the church, confident that because God has a plan for the church, he will fulfill it. And that's why he says, I therefore urge you as a prisoner of the Lord to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility, with gentleness and patience, bearing with one another. But then he says this, eager to maintain unity. Now Paul makes it very clear that unity is essential to the church's witness. That if we are divided, we are not going to be as effective as we would otherwise be. And so Paul is praying that we might live worthy lives, but he's also praying that there will be unity in the church. Now, we asked the question last week, and we didn't get a chance to unpack it, but we asked the question last week, what does Paul mean by unity? Does this mean unity at all costs? Certainly one of the things that Jesus prayed for in his high priestly prayer in John's gospel was that his disciples would be one. Because he was well aware of the fact that sometimes they were not always united. Sometimes they fought like cats and dogs. 
James and John would, would go aside and say to Jesus, you know, grant that one of us may sit at your right hand and one at your left when you come into your kingdom. The other disciples would hear about it and they would become jealous and angry at James and John and there would be bickering and there would be fighting. And Jesus knew that he was entrusting his ministry to these 12 men, that he was going to be leaving, going back to the Father, and that these 12 men were going to have the responsibility of what? Carrying on his reconciling work in the world and the reality was they weren't reconciled to each other. And so one of the things that he prayed for there in that high priestly prayer, what I call the real Lord's Prayer, is that they might be one. But we pointed out that it's, it's not unity for unity's sake. It's not unity at all costs. People can be unified, but only in name only. One of my favorite relatives, my great aunt, uh, was just a wonderful lady. I, when I was a kid... My parents would drop me off almost every weekend with my great Aunt May, and she was just wonderful. She was a delight to be around. Uh, how many of you have ever um, seen the movie Auntie Mame? That's what my Aunt May was like. And, um, you know, that, that's where I learned to talk, my mother said. You know, she said, I didn't speak two words, and they dropped me off for a weekend with my Aunt May, and I'd come back like a thesaurus. It was just the way it was. She was a delight to be around. She doted on me. She treated me. But my uncle was an old grump. I mean, he was just an old grump. And they were married for 50 years. But it was in name only. They had different lives. They lived in different parts of the house. She cooked for him. He paid the bills. But they did absolutely nothing together. Now, that's not what you call a marriage. They were together, but they were not unified. And so when Paul talks about unity in the church, he's not talking about a unity that is a facade only. He's talking about genuine unity. And that's why you'll notice that he says here, there is uh, an, an operative term here. He says, eager to maintain the unity of the what? Of the Spirit. And you'll notice in your version, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, that the word Spirit is capitalized. And we'll come back to that in a minute. So what Paul is talking about is unity in the body of Christ, unity in the church, so that the church and its individual members can live lives worthy of the calling to which they have been called. But he wants it to be a real unity, not just the appearance of it. Now we have to ask the question then, well, what does unity of the Spirit or in the Spirit look like? What does that really look like when a church is truly unified? Well, look at the way Paul puts it. He says, Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, for there is one body. The first thing Paul says is we need to be unified because there's really only one body to begin with. One body. We say this every Sunday when we stand and profess our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. We say, and we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. Now, you might say to yourself, well, now, wait a minute. What, is, what does that mean, one holy, Catholic, and apostolic churches? If you, if, you, if you walk down the streets of Charleston, one of the things that you will notice is that there's a church everywhere, on every street corner, and they are of all different denominations. On Church Street alone, you've got St. Philip's. You walk down two doors, and you've got the French Huguenot Church, you go further down, south abroad, and you eventually hit what? 
First Baptist, St. Michael's is over there, First Scots Presbyterian is over there. We've got all of these different denominations. And yet every Sunday we stand and we profess our belief in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. One church. What does that mean? Well, it's exactly what Paul means. There may be many different denominations, but there is ultimately only one church. One church. One true church. And we use the word Catholic there not as a reference to the Roman Catholic Church, but the word Catholic means universal. There is one true church. There are lots of what you might call visible churches, but there is only one true invisible church. And that's what we profess a faith in every single Sunday. Jesus gives us a picture of this of this, this dichotomy between these two churches, the visible and the invisible church. Keep your finger there in Ephesians and turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 13. Uh, this is one of Jesus' parables. It's a powerful parable. But he helps us to understand this distinction, and it's an important distinction. And this is why I say there are many people who are what I would call churched but unconverted. Do you realize that? There, there have been people who have been going to church their whole lives, and then all of a sudden they hear the message that you are called to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, some people throughout my ministry, almost 25 years in the ordained ministry, I, have had, I can't tell you the number of people who have come up to me and said, I've been going to church my whole life, and I never heard the message that you're proclaiming. I've just never heard that message. I've never heard the God. I've never heard that I'm supposed to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That God is not just up there, but God wants to come down and indwell my heart and my spirit by His Spirit. I, I've never heard that message before. Now, that is not necessarily their fault. It may be that they have been in a denomination where the gospel has just not been preached with power. On the other hand, it may be because it is the work of the Holy Spirit that God alone has to enliven their hearts and their minds so that they have spiritual ears and they're able to hear the message in a way that they've never heard it before. And that's possible as well. But the point I want you to understand is that there is a true church and then there are people that are members of churches, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're part of the true church. And, and this is the point that Jesus is making here in this parable. So take a look at it, Matthew chapter 13. And beginning at verse 24, it's a powerful story. And he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, and the weeds appeared also, and the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So here's the picture. There's a farmer. He goes out and he sows wheat in his field. An enemy who hates him goes out and sows weeds or tares among the wheat. 
Somebody hears about this, they come in, they say, what are we going to do about this? Should we go out and try to figure out what's the weed and what are, what are, the, what are the wheat? And Jesus says, no, the farmer can't do that. Why? Because when they are young, they look alike. So how can you tell the difference? He says, you can't tell the difference until they reach what? Maturity. Then when they are mature, you can tell the difference between the wheat and the tares, the wheat and the weeds. And it's when they are mature, then what happens? The farmer then will gather the wheat, and he will gather the weeds, and he will burn the weeds in judgment, and he will gather the wheat into his barn. This is a picture, Jesus says, of the final judgment. That's what this parable is all about. He says, it's like the kingdom. And, and, and there are many denominations, visible churches, where people have been attending all their lives, but in that visible church, there's this odd mixture of wheat and tares. And we oftentimes don't know who's a wheat and who's a tear. And here's the important thing. God is in the business of transforming weeds into wheat. So what a person that may look or appear to be a weed right now, may by God's grace, actually in his plan, be part of the wheat. But the point that Jesus is making is that there's this mixture you see. There's this odd mixture. And it's there in the church and it's there in the world. And the only way we will know the difference is how? By their fruit. By their fruit. And so that's the picture that, that Jesus is putting before us. And so when he prays for unity, when Paul prays for unity in the body, he's not praying that there's just going to be this false unity. He's praying that the true church, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, that invisible church which the world cannot always see. We see the visible church. The visible church is what shows up week in and week out on Sunday. But within that visible church, there's oftentimes that invisible church. And it's that invisible church that Paul says is the true church. That's what we profess a belief in every Sunday when we say one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And there are members of that church in all the Christian denominations. There, there are wheat. There's wheat in the Catholic church, the Roman Catholic church. There's wheat in the, in the Eastern church, the Greek and Russian Orthodox churches. There's wheat in the Episcopal church. Believe it or not, there is. There's wheat in the Baptist church. There's wheat in the Presbyterian church. But there are weeds as well. And so what does he pray for here? He prays for the one church. He says there's only one true church, and he's praying for unity in that one true church. This is the sense in which Christians should be able to reach across denominational lines and work together, what? For the upbuilding of the kingdom. We're not supposed to sort of say, well, we're, we're God's really chosen people, and those Presbyterians over there, well, they think they are, but not really. No, they're our brothers and sisters in Christ, and it is our responsibility to reach across the aisle and for the church of God to work together for the advance of God's kingdom. So that's what Paul is praying for, that there would be unity, because he says, when all is said and done, there's only one body. The other thing he says is there's only one body, and the body is one. And what he means by that is that there is one body, but the body has different parts. It has different parts. Uh, the epistle to the Ephesians uses many metaphors to describe the church. Paul's already used several of them. 
In Ephesians chapter 2, he used the image of a city-state. We would call this a kingdom today. He said we are citizens, fellow citizens, and heirs of the eternal kingdom. Fellow citizens, that means there's one kingdom. He said you were once far off, but now you have been brought near. You've been made partakers of the family of God. So he uses the image of a family. In Ephesians 2.21, he uses the image of a temple, that we are all to be built up into a holy temple. That's another image of the church. So the church is a kingdom where Christ reigns. It is a family where people bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It is a temple. It is that place where God dwells with his people. That's what a temple is. It is the place where the deity dwells. Later on, he's going to describe it in a wonderful way as a bride. We're going to get there eventually, but just keep your finger there in Ephesians 4 and turn one page, and we'll get there in maybe six months or so. But Ephesians chapter 5, verse, just, just look at what he says here in verse 22. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, there's, those are words to live by right there, let me tell you. You're going to need to get those painted over your bed in your bedroom. Ah, but here's one for the husbands. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. There's the image again. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, that's a passage that is frequently read at weddings. But look at the very next verse. This mystery is profound. The idea that, that two very different people should come together and become one flesh, that is a profound mystery. And yet he says, I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Do you want to know one of the reasons why God finds divorce to be a tragedy? Now, we've got some divorced people out there, and, you know, every time the preacher begins to talk about divorce, they begin to feel guilty or weighted down. And I want you to understand something. This is not meant to make anybody feel guilty. It isn't. You may feel guilty, but that's not the intention. The reason why God hates divorce, and the Bible says that, is because an opportunity is lost. And what is the opportunity? There is no more powerful image of the kind of relationship that Christ longs to have with his church than the picture of a relationship between a husband and a wife. A wife who willingly submits to the spiritual authority of her husband and a husband who loves his wife the way that Christ loved the church, that is to say, he puts her first before himself. I think we've talked about this before. One of the reasons I love the old prayer book, when I say the old prayer book, I'm not talking about the 1928 prayer book. I'm talking about the 1662 prayer book, the real prayer book. <laughs> and in the 1662 prayer book, there are these wonderful marriage vows. 
where a woman promised to love, honor, and obey. Now, that, that's no longer in the 1979. But that's when the 1662 promises to love, honor, and obey. And it doesn't say obey when he's reasonable. It says obey. But what does the husband then say? He turns and he says, and with my body, I thee worship. Now you see, what there is a picture of is not a picture of one party sacrificing and giving everything up. It is a picture of mutual sacrifice. She submits to his authority, but he worships the ground she walks on. And Jesus is saying, this is a powerful thing, it is a beautiful thing, but it is really a picture of what the church is supposed to be. The church submits to the authority of Jesus Christ because Christ did what? He gave his life for the church. And Paul says that is what he's praying for, and that is what unity looks like. Can you imagine if the people of God really submitted themselves to the absolute, complete authority of God, did not question Him, did not debate, did not quibble, but absolutely submitted itself to the authority of Christ. If people across denominational lines did that, do you think America would be a different world than it is now? Absolutely it would. And we wouldn't care about these denominational differences. We wouldn't care about the worship wars. Who has traditional music and who has contemporary music? Who wears vestments and who doesn't? We would be united in what? In the truth of the gospel, in a common cause. And that is what Paul is praying about. And that's the image that he uses, the image of a bride. But he also uses this image of the body. And that's the one that I want us to focus on now, this image of the body. So the church is a kingdom. Yes, Christ reigns there. It is a family where people care for one another and bear one another's burdens. Yes, it is a temple where God dwells. Yes, it is a bride where the church gives its life for Christ because Christ gave its, his life for them. But it is also a body. And you'll see that Paul uses that image of a body here in Ephesians 4, but he uses it a chapter later in Ephesians chapter 5. Now, why is a body significant? It's because a body is something organic. A body's not a machine. Bodies don't grow because you add things onto them. They grow naturally by cell division. And that is how the church is expected to grow as well. Uh, Paul really expands this, not so much in Ephesians. Remember, Ephesians is a short course in theology. These doctrines are expanded. You, you find them all here in Ephesians, but they are expanded elsewhere in his other letters. So take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 for just a minute, and you'll get a picture of what Paul is talking about. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul uses this image of the body, beginning at verse 12. He said, For just as the body is one and as many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, there's the expression again, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. 
And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. So Paul is using this image, and he's acknowledging the fact that within the one church, this one body, there are many parts. If you are a Christian today, if you really have that relationship with Jesus Christ, if you really are a part of the invisible as well as the visible church, then what that means is that you are a part of the body of Christ. And if you are a part, you have a role to play. And it does not matter if you think you're a small part of the body. We've talked about this before. Sometimes the small parts are important. Certainly, if the small part hurts, the whole body hurts. You get up in the middle of the night, and you stub your toe on a bed going to the bathroom. You can say, well, it's only my little toe. Nevertheless, the whole body's in pain. (laughs) Or think about the thumb, the posable thumb. Try try operating without a posable thumb. Try trying to undo the top of a pickle jar. It's hard to do that now, the way they seal them. Try opening a doorknob without a posable thumb. See, that one little member is important, isn't it? It's vitally important. But what's the thumb by itself? Without the rest of the hand. What good is it? It's no, take the thumb off and put it over there on the piano, and what good are the other four fingers? This is the point that Paul is making. We are all part of the body, but you have a part to play, every single one of us. So if you're a Christian, you have a part to play in the body. We have various roles, but one purpose. And that purpose is to live for Christ. So when Paul prays for unity, this is what he's talking about, that we might recognize that there's only one true church, and that if we are members of it, we have a role to play. Some of us have large roles to play. Some of us have small roles to play. But every role is important if the body is going to function properly. How many people on a football team, on the field, at any one time? 22. Is that correct? I'm not a football aficionado. 22 people on the field? 22, plus the referee, okay. We'll leave the referee out. Now, let's say you're going to a Clemson football game. Or Carolina, whichever one, I don't care. (laughs) Any Georgia Bulldog fans out there? Okay, I don't have a dog in the fight. Um, So, 22 people on the field. How many people in the stands? How many? I, I, no, don't tell me thousands. I want an accurate figure. 80,000. 80, I want you to think about that. That is a powerful picture of the way the church normally operates. 22 people down on the field beating each other to a pulp, killing themselves. Well, 80,000 people up there in the stands are cheering them on. 
And oftentimes that's a picture of the church, isn't it? There are those few who are out there killing themselves, trying to get it all done. Meanwhile, there are 80,000 up there in the stands cheering them on. How effective do you think that body's going to be? Not nearly as effective as it could be. So if you're a Christian, I want you to understand something. You have a job. Do not think I have retired to Charleston and I'm coming to St. Philip's to be fed. You may come to St. Philip's to be fed, but we are feeding you because you've got a job to do. And that's the picture that Paul is painting for us here. He wants us to understand there is one body. That is what unity looks like. And we are united. United, he goes on to say, by one spirit. And as I pointed out earlier, you'll notice that the word spirit here is capitalized in Ephesians chapter 4. Why is that? Because we're not just talking about spirit in the small sense. We're not talking about the spirit of the thing or the spirit of the individual. We're talking about the Holy Spirit. The reason why there is one church, one body, is because there is one spirit. There is one Holy Spirit, and he does the same work in every single person. Do you understand that? The Holy Spirit, if you're a Christian, has done the same thing in your life that he has done in the life of another person. Because the Holy Spirit's work is identical. Now, conversion stories may be different. When the Apostle Peter and Paul sat down and talked about their conversion experiences, they were different. But the Holy Spirit had done the same work in both of those men. What is the work of the Holy Spirit? Well, the first work of the Holy Spirit is regeneration. New birth. It's what Paul talks about in Ephesians. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins, but God who is rich in mercy did what? Made you alive. Now that's where we all are spiritually, dead in our trespasses and in our sins. And what does God have to do? He has to make us alive again. This is why Jesus told Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So your conversion story may be slightly different from somebody else's conversion story. You may have grown up in the church. Your parents were faithful. You've never had a moment where you actually doubted or didn't believe. But there does come a moment in your life when you recognize, I really do believe these things. Some years ago, we were on a trip to the Holy Land, and we had a young woman with us on that trip. Young girl, she was a teenager. Uh, her parents decided to take her to the Holy Land for spring break. That was not her idea of a spring break, by the way. <laughs> Going to the Holy Land with a bunch of old people and a priest and her parents. She had more romantic notions about what she was going to do on her spring break. But at any rate, they took her to the Holy Land on her spring break. And she walked around with us all the different places that we went. And one of the things that we like to do when we get to Jerusalem is we like to go to the King David Hotel for dinner one night or for dessert and sit in the lobby and it's just, you know, see how the other half lives. It's just a marvelous place, this great hotel where all the great heads of state have visited and so forth. And we were sitting there and we we're just going around talking about, well, you know, what have you seen that has really inspired you? What was it that surprised you? And we got to this teenage girl and she looked at Bishop Alden Hathaway and he said, well, what did you learn? And she said, I learned that this is all real. 
She said, I, I confess until I came here and walked and saw the places, I assumed that this was sort of like Santa Claus. You know, that this was a metaphor. She said, but I suddenly realized this is real. You see, the light bulb came on for her. Now, it may be that way in your life. For some people, they came to faith early on. For other people, they came to faith later in life. They thought that they were Christians, but they suddenly realized that this is what it really means to be a Christian. They experienced that new birth, regeneration. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter if you're 80. It doesn't matter if you're 8. It's the same work. The Holy Spirit does the same work in all people, regeneration. He then gives them the gift of faith. Uh, you understand that faith follows new birth. It's not the means to new birth. Now, that's the way we oftentimes believe and you'll be born again. But that's not the way the New Testament puts it. You'll be born again. Why? Because you were dead in your trespasses. God raised you, and then he gave you the gift of faith, which is what? Trust. You begin to trust Christ. You begin to walk with him daily. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And you can be 80 and begin to experience that. You can be 8, but it's the same work of the Holy Spirit. The work of sanctification. What is sanctification? The Holy Spirit comes to then dwell within us in our hearts and He begins this process of renovation by which He begins to change us. I've used the image of renovating a house, those of you who have done it. It's an awesome task. It can be an overwhelming task. It's oftentimes a costly task. And it takes a great amount of time because you oftentimes have to go what? Room by room, by room. Do you know that's exactly what God does with us? God comes in and he takes possession of us. He comes to dwell with us. We invite him to come and live in our hearts. In other words, come and make my life your home. Make my heart your house. Well, God says, well, I'm going to come in. I'm, I'm going to make your heart my house, but it's my house now. And there are some things in your house, I don't like. And because it now belongs to me, I'm going to change some things. And that's exactly what God begins to do. He begins to change us and to transform us and to renovate us bit by bit. Transforming us what? Into his house. Transforming us into his temple. Transforming us into the image of himself. You know, sometimes you meet a person and you walk into their house and you say, I'm not surprised, this is exactly what I would expect. That's the way it is with Christ. If you come to come to know somebody and they are a true believer and Christ really dwells within them, you are not surprised by the way they live their life, by the way they look, by the way they conduct themselves. That is called the work of sanctification. It's the fruit of the Spirit. What does Christ begin to produce in us? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, all of those things that are the fruit of the Spirit he begins to produce in us. And that doesn't matter if you're 80. It doesn't matter if you're 8. It doesn't matter if you're a Presbyterian or an Anglican. It doesn't matter if you're a Roman Catholic or Russian Orthodox. It doesn't matter if you're part of the United Brethren or you're a Methodist. It is the same Spirit doing the same work in the same people who make up the same body, who have the same role to glorify Christ by the way they live. Paul says one spirit. He goes on to say we need to be united. Why? Because we have one hope. Hope. Now hope is a word, unfortunately, that has fallen on hard times. 
times. Politicians love the word hope. And they talk about it ad nauseum. But we hear a great deal about hope. But what does hope mean to us today? When we think of hope, what we generally think of is wishful thinking. Hmm, I've had nothing good to eat today. I hope Kristen made a good meal. <laughs> when we say it like that, what are we doing? Crossing our fingers because there's no real guarantee. That's the way we think about hope. Hope is credulity. It is hope against hope. It is wishful thinking. But you have to understand that when the Bible talks about hope, that is not what it means. In the same way that when we talk about grace, oh, that person is such a, a graceful person. What do we mean? We generally mean she's elegant. She looks like Audrey Hepburn. That's what we think of graceful. But of course, when the Bible talks about grace, it's talking about something very different, isn't it? God's undeserved, unearned favor. A person who is full of grace is not just somebody who can control themselves in the midst of difficulty, grace under fire. It is a person who's filled with the grace and the mercy and the love of God. Well, the same thing is true when it comes to hope. When the Bible talks about hope, it's not talking about wishful thinking. It's talking about something that we know is going to happen. It just hasn't happened yet. That's why it's a hope. But it's a guarantee. The old Navy hymn book used to capture this beautifully. And the old prayer book used to capture this as well. The old Naval hymnal uh, prayer book was actually, burial office was actually based on the Book of Common Prayer. But when a sailor was buried at sea during World War II, and they would dump his body over the side, the chaplain would say, we commit his soul to God and his body to the deep in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection at the coming of Christ, at whose appearance the sea shall give up her dead. I love that language, a sure and certain hope. We know it's going to happen. It is a guaranteed thing. It just hasn't happened yet. That's what the Bible means by hope. It doesn't mean, well, I hope I go to heaven when I die. It is a sure and certain hope. If you are in Christ, that is a guarantee. It hasn't happened yet, but you can take it to the bank. That's what we mean by hope. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about. Paul says we need to be united. Why? Because there's only one church. There's only one body. It crosses denominational lines. And there's only one body with many parts, but there's only one body. Why? Because there's only one spirit, and he does the same work in all people. And that same spirit produces in us the same hope. What is that hope? That hope that one day we are going to be united with Christ in that place where there will be no sighing, no grief, no pain, that place where God himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. To me, that's the most wonderful picture, God himself wiping away every tear from your eyes. It's not as though your tears just dry up. God comes and he wipes them away from your eyes. That's the great promise that Jesus made to his disciples in John chapter 14. Chapter 14 is part of what scholars sometimes refer to as the farewell discourse. Why? Because they are among the final words that Jesus spoke to his disciples prior to his crucifixion. Now, over the course of the three previous years, Jesus had told his disciples that he was going to be leaving them. That he was going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to be betrayed at the hands of his own people, crucified by the Romans, and buried. 
and on the third day rise again. But the problem was they didn't want to hear that. Now Jesus had told them over and over again, but they refused to believe it. And so I'll just wait until we... It's competition. I can't do it. (laughs) It's okay. Don't worry about it. It happens to me all the time. John chapter 14. So Jesus is telling them that he's going to be departing. And he's told them that over the course of three years, but they had refused to believe it. Well, now the moment's here. It's the Last Supper. He's having his last meal with them. Within a few short hours, the temple guards are going to come across the Kidron Valley. They're going to arrest Jesus, drag him off, and within 24 hours, he's going to be hanging on a tree. And the disciples are completely unprepared. I always say that they were like people living along the coast of South Carolina in an age before accurate weather forecasting. We know when a storm is coming, don't we? We have ample notice. We're told to evacuate, sometimes premature evacuations. We all know what that's like. But we have plenty of notice. But there was a time when people didn't know. You came out in the morning and the wind began to whip up, the rain began to spit, You thought it was just a fall storm. And then all of a sudden, you were in the midst of a hurricane, and there was no way. You didn't know it was happening, and there was no way to escape it. Well, that's the way it was going to be for these disciples. And so what did Jesus say? He said these words to encourage them. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, that where I am, there you may be also. Those are some of the most comforting words in Scripture. These men who had been together, who had been a band of brothers, were going to be scattered. Like sheep, they were going to be scattered. The shepherd was going to be taken from them. He was going to be crucified. They were going to see everything that they had lived for. They had left their families, their homes, their livelihood in order to follow Jesus. And that dream was going to come crashing down. And he made them this promise. He said, I know it's going to look dark for a time, but there is a promise of a future hope. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, and I love that, I go to prepare a place for you. I don't know what your image of heaven is, but sometimes we imagine heaven to be this sort of nondescript place with gates of pearl and streets of gold and angels, countless numbers of angels sitting around doing nothing but plucking harps on clouds. If that is your image of heaven, who wants to go? If if you've lived in the South Carolina low country, who wants to go to a place like that? That is not heaven. C.S. Lewis got it right when he said, Heaven is that great adventure, that great story in which each chapter is better than the one before. It is the story that goes on forever. And what Jesus was saying to his disciples is, one day you're going to be a part of that adventure. And I prepared a place for you, with you specifically in mind. This is not some sort of generic youth hostel. This is a place with you in mind. And if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and take you to be with me, that where I am, there you may be also. In other words, Peter, you're going to go off in one direction. James and John, you're going to go off in another direction. Andrew, you're going off in another direction. You men who have been together and seen so much and become a band of brothers, you're going to be scattered. But the promise is one day I'm going to gather you together. 
It's going to be a great family reunion gathered around that table at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and there will be no more sighing. There will be no more grief. There will be no more pain. I myself shall wipe away every tear from your eyes. That is our hope. In the midst of all of life's uncertainties, that is the hope that you and I have. And Jesus tells us it is a sure and certain hope. And so Paul says the church should be united in its mission. Why? Because there's only one church, one body, many parts, but one church. One spirit who's done the same work in you that he's done in your neighbor who's a believer. And because we have that one spirit, we have this one hope, the same hope. You might as well get used to liking your brothers and sisters in Christ here on earth because you're going to spend eternity with them in heaven. Can you imagine what a different world it would be if that's what the church looked like? Not squabbling, not fighting, not, as I like to say, praying on their knees on Sunday and on their neighbors every other day of the week, but a, but a body together, united. It would transform the world. And that's what Paul is praying for. That is what Paul is hoping for. And we come back in two weeks, we'll take a look at some of the other things that Paul mentions. Because he goes on to mention one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And what's powerful about that is that you'll notice that it's Trinitarian. When he gets to the end, you'll see that he's really talking about the triune Godhead. People say, well, the Trinity, the word Trinity is never used in the New Testament. Did you know that? The word Trinity is never found anywhere in the New Testament. It's a theological term, threeness. But while the word Trinity is never found anywhere in the New Testament, the idea of the Trinity is everywhere. It's there at the beginning in the book of Genesis. It is here in Ephesians. It is there when Jesus sends out his disciples, go ye into all the world and make disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And what I want you to understand is that there are three persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but there's one God. There is unity in the Trinity. And when Jesus prays that his disciples may be one, that they may be united, that's the kind of unity that he's talking about. He's talking about the same kind of unity that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit enjoy. That is the kind of unity that he wants for his people. That kind of intimacy. When we have it, the world is never the same. Let's pray. Father, there are so many things that divide us, and we get hung up on so many of the little details. But the Apostle Paul reminds us that we are to be one. We are to be one in the truth, one in the Spirit, because there's only one church. There's one Lord. There's one faith. There's one baptism. There is one God and Father of all. So, Lord, in the midst of a world where there is so much conflict, so much strife, so much warfare, Grant us the grace as Christian people to be united in the truth, to be united by your Spirit, united in our new birth, united in our sanctification, united for your holy purposes. All this we ask in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.
Thank you.